everybody. Welcome back to Something Pretty, your favorite Deadwood podcast. I'm joined by Clay. Clay, how are you? I'm good. I'm uh, happy to be back in the saddle, as it were. Yeah, it's been a, one it's leg been a up. bit. One leg up, one in the mud, tied up, inebriated, and swearing at your doctor. However, I will say I'm not in the best condition I could be because currently the entire area of my fucking asshole is one gigantic <laughs> throb. <laughs> I, I have no idea what's going on down there. <laughs> you just need a, a generously proportioned prostitute standing behind you. Behind, <laughs> uh, what was the, the, the thing behind... Behind every great man, there's a woman pegging him. Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can all get to that that point. This episode had me wondering uh, one thing. There's a scene where we're going to be talking about a lie agreed upon part two. Um, there's a little bit of like a, almost like a vignette weird scene that happens between Trixie and Charlie as they're waiting for another character to come out. And she offers him, uh, she, Trixie offers Charlie a, a blowjob. And he says, what? Mm. And she says, she says a blowjob, a nice open air blowjob, which got me wondering, do I, do I undervalue location in oral <laughs> sex? Because I, I didn't think open air was going to be anything that really added anything to the algebra there. But apparently it's something that you use to put a cherry on the top of what you're offering. I, well, I never considered it. I mean, she is a professional, so she knows all the ins and outs, as it were. Open air seems like something that a man of confidence would request, right? Like, I don't, I, I, I would think open air would be unappealing. Mm. You'd want like back of the chariots or whatever they're riding in on or like behind the stables or something like that. But Well, the, the prostitutes in Deadwood are a special breed. You can choose open air. You can choose uh, mid-exposition. Yeah. <laughs> There's many, many things on the menu. Next to the stovepipe that's not uh, appropriately sealed off to prevent a fire. There's a lot of things mm-hmm. that you can get mm-hmm. away with. So we're back. It's been a little bit of a break, but we are here, at least for us, it's been a little bit of a break. We're here to talk about A Lie Agreed Upon Part 2. So we'll play the music, we'll come back, and we'll break it down. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. This is A Lie Agreed Upon Part 2, directed by Ed Bianchi, written by Jody Worth. In this one, Swearingen licks his wounds following the battle with Bullock. Doc Cochran is concerned with Al's difficulty urinating. Farnham reports that Bullock has returned to the Widow Garrett's hotel room. Bullock and Alma discuss their future. We leave the camp immediately or remain and sever connection, Bullock says. Maddie, Joni Stubbs, and the whores begin transforming a raw space into the chez amis. Calamity Jane returns to town so inebriated that she falls from her mount and lies in the mud, one foot still <laughs> tethered to her horse. Otter and Calamity Jane accompany Bullock to retrieve his badge and gun from the gem. Swearingen hands them over and utters conciliatory words, I offer you these in the hope that you'll wear them for a good long fucking time and in this fucking camp. So here we are, Clay. It's been a little bit of a while since we recorded a De- Deadwood episode, which unfortunately happened right in the middle of our two-parter. So we're, we, we chose the wrong episodes to take a break. But mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. as we mentioned before, this one takes place in the same night as the previous episode. So the reason that we were saying that maybe it's considered to be a two-parter is because it takes place over one day, basically. Oh, the, sure. The daytime sure. episode was the prior one, and this is the nighttime episode where everything comes around. But... 
what'd you think of the conclusion to a lie agreed upon? I thought it was good. I thought <laughs> I I feel like these episodes continue to get funnier. Yeah. Um yeah. <clears throat> they really they're really mining uh Swearingen in particular for for comedy in in this absurd comedy that they're playing with him. Through his his suffering with the kidney stones. Yeah. Yeah. And um <clears throat> Uh, you you only get like a a little whiff of Farnham in this, but he's really funny as well. Yeah, <laughs> he says the uh, he's like he didn't hear the song of the bedstead or something, and they just yes. ignore. Him. <laughs> Keep looking forward, and then he's like, "I got to go deal with those fucking whores," and <laughs> walks out the door. And then he's you know he's he's trying to trying to conceal himself while he's spying on Joni, and then who is it? What's the other woman's name? Uh, the Oh, it's Alice Matt, Maddie, I think is Maddie. Yeah. Maddie says something about like, oh, there's some Cretan, blah, blah, blah. And Joni's <laughs> like, yeah, that's the mayor. That's the mayor. <laughs> As she calls him like some weasel-faced fuck or something out there. Yeah. That's the mayor. There's a rodent-looking creature, a lamp in one of your barrows. Pay him no heed. That's the mayor. It's, it's, it's. It's a really interesting episode, too, because I, I feel like the funnier that these episodes get, the more ridiculous Bullock looks. Yes. Because Bullock is so just down the middle, serious and, and uh, over the top that every time they do something that's lighthearted and then they cut back to him just like stewing in his own bullshit, mm-hmm. you, you can't help but not take him seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- I think the two-parter is basically a Bullock story. Um, in some ways, it is a condensed version of the entire first season, his arc. It kind of, it's kind of repeating the same idea with him, except it's more um, abridged. And there is a... The first season didn't have his family present, right? So there wasn't like this great push for him. He was kind of just going through trying to figure out if he wanted to run the store. He didn't want to be the sheriff. He had all these other things that he did and didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, his discomfort with them as a character. And this one is basically over the span of a night, he kind of repeats that arc again, except things come out a little bit more, uh, a little bit different in the wash at the end of it. But I think it's a, um, it's a Bullock episode that on this rewatch, me and Amy are both just kind of like impressed by how unlikable Bullock is as a person. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, it's unexpected, I guess. Like I always knew this from the first couple few times that I've watched the show, but this time it's really obvious here. And like, I think the the best way to crack into it is that like in this episode, Bullock is basically attempting to commit suicide by cop and no one allows him to do that. And he, he doesn't even down to his line when he's talking to Alma and he has that, like Amy got like furious at him when he has that line, he's like, I'm not in a state where I can make a decision. So you have to make the decision for me. And it's <laughs> know, like, what a yeah, it's, it's <laughs> like he's, he's part of 50% of this relationship, but he, he passes everything off and just doesn't have any sort of, um, no, he doesn't feel that he has a stake in anything when everyone else clearly believes that he has a stake in things. So mm. what'd you think about Bullock in this one? My proposal would be we leave the camp immediately or remain in severed connection. A choice for me to make? Yes. I don't seek to absolve myself. I don't believe I'm to be relied upon for good judgment. Or even for an account of your own feelings. I only know 
that for us to stay and not sever connection would add line to her humiliation. Renew her humiliation daily. Yes, I understand. Yeah, I think uh, um, I, probably my favorite interaction with him was with Saul because he's finally someone close to him. We get to see somebody close to him who clearly has experienced this shit from him before just say to him essentially listen i'm I'm sick of this go fuck yourself well you know it's yeah it, it, he's when he's he's telling him about you know uh he's got to take the money saying. and back his family when he runs away yeah and, and, like he, and you know this hypothetical about splitting the partnership and saul's just like dude fuck off you know i've, yeah. I've heard this stuff from you so often <laughs> yeah. it's just getting you know and he's got a bullet in his arm and he's he's drunk and so he has any um He's got his load on. He's, 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 yeah. high. he's he, he enjoys saying he enjoys calling him a cocksucker. <laughs> he's, right. cocksucker. he's now he's officially part of the camp now. <laughs> yes, yeah. But yeah, I I really like that because again, it does it does accent how ridiculous Bullock is and how his his macho bluster is just so stupid. Yeah, he's, and I I really like that about the show too because I think it would be really easy to to play this i mean it is kind of a commentary as we've talked about on just the general western hero right because it's it's very easy to play this kind of character off as just the the tough silent the tough silent type western hero but in this one he's the most ridiculous looking many times out of a town full of ridiculous people yeah 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 that's maybe the um maybe that's what the comedy is kind of heightening around it Mm. is just that his uh his sort of steadfast inability to laugh, like it's the, you know, he and Charlie both don't laugh. But when Jane tells that like sort of silly story about like someone someone asked her to someone asked if they could suck her cock or something, and no yeah. one laughs and they're just kind of <laughs> sitting there. But it's it's no one. Um, everyone else is kind of. Everyone else is in a state of other relationships and like furthering their sort of development and Bullock is just stuck in this moment when he can't, he can't really escape uh, what he wants to do. I mean, I think largely the main point beyond sort of breaking down the Western righteousness of a hero is a kind of, um, I think the main theme of the episodes is the fact that Seth is kind of growing up in the sense of realizing that his life can't be everything that he wants it to be. And yeah, and on the level of the town, the town needs him to be the sheriff that he doesn't want to be and he wants to run away from. On the personal, he has all this responsibility towards his brother's widow and his uh, nephew that he has to take care of, and he doesn't want to do that either. And so the episodes are the setup of him kind of threatening to run away from all of it and then being forced back by everybody else in the second episode to accept, like, to do the right thing and to realize that his happiness is not really central to everyone else around him and that the mm. the town is only going to function if he does his job, even if it's not something he wants to do. So it's like, it's that sort of, um, it's the story of growing up. It's like you, you realize that, like, responsibility is larger around you than it is just to yourself, and you sometimes have to sacrifice for the greater good of family or town or city or whatever you live in. Yeah. I I think it kind of takes his black and white approach to stuff and really kind of cracks it open in a way that it kind of shows that 
I think I think you, what you're talking about is correct. Where he's got this certain um, the black and white nature of the way he views things is kind of inherently selfish. Yeah, and being forced in a situation where these things are now colliding, these real world things are now colliding. He has to look at the the, the grays involved instead of just the uh, uh, the simple answer of me mad punch face right yep. you know he's got to deal with his or his just run away and, in this one his, or run away his, yeah his yeah. thing is i either stay or i run away those are my two options so it's literally like a fight or flight situation or mindset that he finds himself in yeah yeah he's um yeah he's he's he is fairly unlikable in this one it's just a and i guess you could it might be too harsh in that you are supposed to feel bad for him, I think, too. Like, there is a... He is growing up and realizing things, but I think it's it's kind of a universal thing of, like, everyone kind of goes through this. It just seems that Bullock is a little bit older than you would expect someone to be realizing this at this point. But mm. he also... It's also not his natural family, right? Like, he got sort of pushed into that. Um Right. I really like the scene where he's talking to Charlie about his brother. He explains that his brother was killed uh, in sort of like an American in the, in the war. Uh, he was down in Mexico and died and was buried in Mexico. And Bullock had to go down there and get his body and bring it back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it ties it ties in nicely to like the reason that Bullock feels so guilty about the whole thing is that his brother died trying to. <clears throat> do something like to be larger than himself really. And like the noble sacrifice of his brother's death in the war. And Bullock is kind of ashamed of himself that he can't do the same in his situation for his brother. And I, the one thing I, the thing I like about the show is that we just finished our uh, season of Picard, obviously the, no one, this entire episode, no one, says to Bullock what is going... So, like, me and Amy are having a discussion. I'm curious what you think. Does anyone besides Swearingen in this episode know what Bullock is thinking about? Like, does, does anyone have any sort of, like... I, I guess to, to clarify it, it's like the there's the... I see Bullock is trying to basically commit suicide by cop in this one and that him going back for his badge and his gun is he knows that if he goes into the gem, he will probably be killed and shot Mm -hmm. by somebody. And Swearingen's the only other character who actually voices this and says this out loud to the camera during his, like, blowjob monologue. Um, (laughs) Is that going to become, is that going to become, like, something he does often? Because the first time it was, like, okay, they're doing something, but this time I was like, oh, they're going back to this well already? (laughs) I don't don't think he does it too often after this, but it's the... They've definitely they definitely think that now that it happened in the prior episode, they might as well mm. continue this a little bit. But I don't think it continues too long. And Bullock's a fucking strategist, ain't he? Sets terms to publicly humiliate me. And my penalty if I don't comply is he walks in the bar downstairs and takes 15 bullets in the chest. And that ain't no old bullet, you know. Bullock, he's one of those special fucking cases. You don't know what in fuck's going on in their mind. And he's big. With Montana. Big. I heard that today. Because the news earlier from Yankton and the fucking commissioners wasn't adequately confusing. 
Not to mention the fucking telegraph coming in and four whores that I don't know who the fuck they work for. Three minutes. Shut the fuck up. Book basically wants to semi-commit suicide. He he like it's his one out that he sees that he could go in there and Swearingen says that. Bullock has him in a pretty good position because he gets to be the hero by doing that. Like, if he goes into the gem and is killed, he comes out as kind of the righteous one of that outcome. Right, right. And so Swearingen knows that he can't do that. That's why he goes down and gives him back the gun. And also because Yankton is interested in Bullock becoming the sheriff because uh, they think that Bullock is the man to, to sort of lead the area or whatever. But what I find interesting about the script in the episode is that no one ever has a direct conversation about any of this. Like no one, right. even Charlie Utter, when he's talking to Bullock the entire time, never brings this up as a possibility. And it, le- it left me, Amy and, me and Amy wondering, if Char- do you think Charlie Utter understands what Bullock is doing? Or is he just sort of scared and has not scared, but hesitant to go back to the gym because he knows that violence is probably going to happen? And I, we just think it's interesting because no one... Everyone knows that Bullock is selfish. I think Trixie calls Bullock selfish multiple times in this mm. episode, but no one mm-hmm. seems to recognize or call him out on what he's actually doing. And so I, I guess I'm just curious where you think everyone else in this show fits. Do they realize what they're doing, or is it just Swearingen and Bullock who understand what they're doing, or does Bullock even know what he's doing? Yeah, I, was, I wasn't I was sure the angle that Charlie was coming from, honestly, because when, when he first started getting the vapors or whatever yeah um, faint yeah i thought maybe it was that he was just trying to avoid being involved with more violence but then i was thinking i'm he's he's never been someone to to do something that for lack of a better term cowardly like he's always he's always been there for for bill and even in, in the street fight he took a, a shotgun blast to the face yeah for bullock so I think he I think he knows. I think because I mean honestly isn't isn't what Seth is doing kind of a a different version of what Bill did? Yeah, to some extent. Yeah. And I think I think what Charlie does is he essentially just kind of tries to distract him long enough to let let his his temper come down, which is why I think he he reacts kind of weird when Jane shows up because Jane showing up she's just like well let's go over and shoot the motherfucker you know? <laughs> yeah, right, like she yeah. she brings it all right back and Charlie's like oh Jesus Christ <laughs> so I I have to I have to imagine that Charlie understands what is if not directly what's going on. With Seth, um, I think he sees the signs enough to know that Seth really should, at the very least, like sleep on this. Yeah, or, just cool down, think, yeah. sleep on it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I think that's probably correct. His, it is like, and that's what's so. I think that's the subtlety of the show because when Charlie first starts pretend, pretending, I'm assuming they don't even acknowledge that he is pretending at any point. Right. So it's right. it's very difficult. It's very difficult to understand. Yeah. On on another show, at the end of the episode, after he gets his his gun back, like as they're walking away, Seth would make a, a crack, being like, "Oh, looks like you uh, you're a lot better now." Yeah. He's like, yeah. Well, you know, I just walked around a bit, and you know. <laughs> yes. It's funny. It's funny how the nighttime air helps me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's it's true it's um i just i just i like the 
mystique of it. It's like it's it's weird because I don't find it. I guess I don't consider it to be mystique because I have a, a fairly clear idea of what I think is going on in the show, but the show refuses to take a moment where it spoon feeds the audience what exactly these characters are thinking at any right. point. And I, I appreciate that about it. I think that it on, on people's first watch through, it probably makes the show seem confusing in a lot of ways where there's a, um, there is a kind of lack of clarity coupled with the way that the characters speak to each other. It becomes incredibly difficult to understand motivations sometimes, but I think in hindsight, especially having seen it a few times, it's, I would agree with you about Charlie, for instance. Like I think that he's, he's not scared of anything, but he is recognizing that Seth and Bill are kind of cut from the same cloth and that he needs to de-escalate the situation before things get worse. I, I don't, I don't think that he knows that Bullock is going in with sort of suicidal. Th- like, would you agree with that with me that Bullock seems semi-suicidal in this? Like, what he's choosing to do. Um, it wasn't my first thought, but now that you were talking about it, I can see that being a motivation. Um, yeah, I, I can see that because I, I, I think I think regardless of whether or not he is actively suicidal i think one of the thing i think the thing that all of the other characters are kind of pulling from this his actions here are why are you doing this like what other outcome could there be but to start more violence and why do you want to do that nobody says that to him directly but i feel like that's the reaction that most people are getting from this yeah and whether or not they believe that he's doing it specifically to to get killed or, or what i don't know um, so I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's tough to it's tough to say because, I mean, <clears throat> you, you, he has to know that if he goes in there to start some shit, there's what, what's the what's the line? I mean, it's the, it's the thing that Al says, right, when he says something about there's 15, 15 guns that would fill him full of lead as soon as he, you know. Yeah, I forget what the exact line is. But. Yeah, that, that that's the thing that <clears throat> the thing that makes me most feel that that's the case is because Swearingen, uh serves as book sort of other half really in the show right. and like very right. strongly in these uh, these episodes where they are at loggerheads with each other but Swearingen has a line where during his blowjob monologue his basic line is that he is he's upset that book has him somewhat cornered here because he can't uh, no matter what the outcome is Swearingen is going to come out looking like the dishonorable one of this right. of this take right. so Bullock going in and dying through the sort of suicide by cop thing where he goes into the gym to try to get his gun and badge back and is killed by Dan Doherty or something. Bullock is doing that because my opinion is that Bullock is doing that because he knows he can no longer run away at the end of the story, but he doesn't, he also does not really want to stay in the situation. So his Mm -hmm. out is to be a sort of suicide by cop thing where he goes in and everyone sort of thinks that he's doing the righteous, honorable thing in the shot down in his, prime basically Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's what i always read it as and that's why he's sort of like when swearingen comes out and just talks to him he's kind of flummoxed he doesn't know what to say about anything you know it's he has this sort of strange like peculiar look on his face when turns is like do you want your hat back and and stuff like that (laughs) and he gives him back so he he's he's stumped at that point and then he gets to go home after that but that's my 
that's my take on Bullock is that the, the reason he decides to go back is not for any sort of like honorable thing of like showing William his stepson that he is right. to do and get the gun and stuff like that. It's to attempt to save face and escape the situation at the same time. It's like that old Bill Burr bit where he talks about how he only thinks about suicide when he has to do something really trivial. Yeah. Like he, he remembered he had to bake a, bake a pie for a, a, a holiday and he's like, I wanted to just throw myself out the window. <laughs> yeah, Get out of the, baking this pie. That was always the, um, uh, I forget who else had said this, but I, I always thought it was a really good point where there's always like, you know, there's always these stories with um, either celebrity or someone famous, right? Where they'll, they'll do like a deep dive on them and they'll be like, you know, I was, I was suicidal at a certain point. It's like, I, I just used to have days where I would think about, uh, just offing myself and stuff like that. And the person made the point, like, depending on how you're interpreting this, like, most people kind of have suicidal thoughts at times. You know, you're like, you're not, mm-hmm. not that you're serious, but like, their example is always like, if you go to the edge of a cliff and you're like, what if I just jumped off this thing? You know, like, that would be a, mm-hmm. that would be a hell of a thing. It's, it's that, uh, the suicidal thought, <laughs> I guess, for, for the amount of people having suicidal thoughts, it makes, me just wonder about like what is the the timbre of your suicidal thoughts i guess like you're actually thinking about it or you're just like what would this world be like if i weren't here in a sort of less serious way or whatever um bullock is he gets his gun back he's back with the uh, no bundling board in between the bed with mm-hmm. and a gun at the very end i did have to look up what that was just it a was separating more, board right that keeps two yeah, people yeah more or less what i thought it was yeah I don't know why they call it a bundling board. It doesn't bundle at all, does it? No, it's just a piece of wood. It's like it's like a headboard that extends down the length of the uh, the long length of the bed. Yeah, keep people and, on their uh, sides. Yeah, uh, the thing I was reading said it was it was meant for couples who were in the midst of courting, so they could they could share a bed. Yeah. Uh, and remain decent and keep their clothes on. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Yeah, I guess, I guess the sometimes it works and sometimes it didn't. I, I guess the original uh, title of the Beach Boys, Wouldn't It Be Nice, was the bundling board. Uh, that would make sense. <laughs> um, uh, anything else here for these crew? I mean, Jane came back. Uh, Swearingen continues. I guess Swearingen getting sicker is the more, uh, the Swearingen crew is probably the other place to go with this. Al continues to get worse. I think it's kidney stones. Is there, is there another kind of stone besides kidney stones that you can get? Uh, you can get gallstones. Gallstones. Are those not the same thing? I actually have no idea. If it's a peeing thing, I assume it's kidney stone. I thought it was like a prostate thing. No, he's got which stones, is, yeah, yeah. Oh, which I, I assume that was why she was putting the thumb up his ass because it was a prostate thing. Well, I because I it's uh, so the doc calls them gleets, I think, which are the little crystals that come out. Oh, yes, yeah, so he has okay. passed any. How's Bullock doing? I don't discuss my patients one with another. Bleeding through his fucking ear is bleeding through it pretty fucking good out there in the thoroughfare. Tell me about that other department. Inform that fucking lunatic. Next you see him, I'm fit as a fucking fiddle and ready to play on. Inform me, Al, to what mark in your piss pot did you fill? The volume was adequate. I didn't check the mark. Any discharge of gleats, burning... Or soreness. 
Have you ever had a kidney stone? No. Have you? No. I have not, thankfully. No. Every, everyone I know who has them, it sounds like the most excruciating thing I've, I've, I've they've ever experienced. Yeah, I've had an uncle who had one. Um, and the, the, like the painful ones are the ones that I've never known anyone who's gone in for surgery to fix it. They usually just like piss them out. And that's that's mm-hmm. the end of it, which sounds like it's only kind of special hell. But I guess um, I was reading something uh, that was unrelated to this. But like back in this era, in the colonial era, uh, like, do you know the Journal of Samuel Pepys? I think is his name is pronounced. Do you know that thing, that sort of I, journal? I, I, I do not. Is it like a is it like a manifesto of a serial killer? No, or? it's a it's a um, it's famous for being like a very uh, a man named Samuel Pepys lived in colonial America, and he was famous because he kept a very detailed diary uh, <laughs> on himself, and it's largely been intact and recovered, but. He it's famous because it's not particularly like it's really just a day in the life of this guy every single day. <laughs> Dear Constance. <laughs> oh, this sucks so much. But he has Why did I ever leave <laughs> Jolly Old England? <laughs> he has he has sort of funny stories about like he he like there's just weird samples like his like basement flooded with or something like that. And he he has these funny little tales about like living in colonial America. But one of the things when, that's well when known, we came here, no one bothered to figure out where we would put all the human shit, and it's just everywhere. He's he has, he has some story about stepping into. He says he says turds, which I thought was funny. I didn't know turds were a word, but he he says he stepped into a big pile of human turd. Um, <laughs> which is, do. this is why we fought for freedom from Britain. Uh, but he had a, one of the things that's famous about him is that he had a, I think I got this from the Bill Bryson book. He, he suffered from a stone at some point in his life and mm-hmm. the experience of getting it out, it was like, a, it was one that he had to have surgery on, which is basically they hold your legs behind your head with no anesthesia oh. and cut like your taint open oh basically and they have to fish around with like pliers to pull oh out what basically comes out like a ping pong ball sized rock out of you oh. and it apparently <laughs> Bryson was funny writing about it just saying that like the experience so traumatized him that like numerous entries in his diary talk about the time that he had the, the yeah. stone taken out and I think that's what Al has. I think Al has that version. So the, the issue is that you have to get it out of you before it gets to the size where the that's the operation that has to be done. Oy. Yeah. Honestly, that's the thing. I I praise the creator every day that I was not born in the 1800s yeah. or before. Because yeah. like, it's minor inconveniences. Those are the <laughs> things that would drive me to want to jump off a cliff. It's like pro- if probably I, a pill you can take. How did anybody? How did anybody? If if I I've, I grew up, I had a lot of ear infections when I when I was a kid. Yep, that's something that I would I would want to jump in front of a a, a moving bu- a buffalo or something. Yeah, to, tooth pain. Like, yeah, tooth, tooth pain. pain. Yeah, yeah, like or imagine imagine having bad eyesight. <laughs> you know, like uh, people yeah. with Coke bottle glasses. What did they do? Did they just go through life <laughs> unable to see anything? Is that just <laughs> like it just a their whole life was just like a, a foggy night? Yeah. Well, you know, not to keep going back, but I mean, Star Trek Picard clearly tells us, Clay, that 2023 is the worst year to be a human being alive. Of course. So. <laughs> yes. All the, I mean, you can see the 
a fire by the Hollywood sign. What more do you need? No, but I had it speaks uh, for itself. I had the two back surgeries. I would just be hobbled. Yeah, like at at thirty years old, I'd just be hobbled in my bed for the rest of my life. Yeah, they would have shot you like a horse. Yeah. Yeah, and I would have I would have been begging for it probably by the, just to get out of that. But I mean, that's like the, you know, that's largely the uh, average death age. It's not that people were just dying at forty years old. It's because so many people were dying because of some horrible, annoying right. kidney stone I problem. Mean, that's that's the other thing too. I would have died in some war probably right. by this point, or some farming accident or something. Yeah. People with ki- like just tons of kids and only like kids each have like a fifty percent chance of surviving, you know. And it's just yeah. like you just have tons of kids and <laughs> a lot gen- of them don't don't survive. Uh, the generational trauma that must yeah. have been suffered by just multiple generations of people. Yeah, yeah. No, it's we uh, we do have it lucky. You probably have a pill to dissolve your kidney stones. Your kids. I don't even want to go back. I don't even want to go back before the invention of toilet paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's like what. <laughs> 40 45 years ago yeah world war ii do they have shipments of world and toilet paper in world war ii i don't actually know i'm not sure 1876 or 77 when this takes place i don't think they have they don't have toilet paper what's the the first publication of the sears catalog that's when <laughs> that's when toilet paper was invented you just tell them to seal up the ass flap um <laughs> So, yeah, Al and his crew, uh, we get uh, the, probably the most interesting thing is the continuation of Dan Doherty and Silas Adams, their sort of uh, disagreements with each other. Mm. And this one results in Dan sort of beating the shit out of Silas's uh, good buddy, and Silas has to kill Slippery Dan by jamming him Poor against Slippery the Poor Slippery Dan. Yeah. Man, yeah. I do love this show in in how it, if it doesn't know what to do with characters, it is... Not above just wiping the <laughs> wiping the slate clean. What was the other Dan? Was his other? Because oh, other Dan yeah. died in the the first episode, right? The one in the yeah, bar. Yeah, was another another adjective Dan. Yeah. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, but slippery Dan served his purpose and then just had to go um, through a. And I, I just you know it's the funniness of the scripts too. Like after after Adams kills him by jamming him into the deer antlers, there's a running gag of people being like, "I would have killed that guy by jamming him on the antlers a thousand times." That's I man, I thought that was so f- amazing and hilarious that when Dan has his crisis of co- confidence and Al goes to talk to him, the way that he gets him back is he is he's like, "Do you see how that guy only stabbed him through two of those antlers?" <laughs> if either I know that if either you or I had been involved, we would have stabbed him through like seven or eight, or possibly ten <laughs> antlers. And Dan's like, "You're right. You know what?" You, you're right. We would have. Yep. And then that's the thing that he's later on. He's like, you know, if I had done that, we would have been through 10 antlers. <laughs> he tells somebody else the same thing. That's kind of a common uh, Swearingen underling thing is they repeat what Swearingen says to them to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is mm-hmm. funny. Yeah, Imagine right. being lactose intolerant back then. I'm just thinking about all the things, like the common things <laughs> that would just be like excruciating because yeah. everything was like milk and cheese and shit. Yep. Literally, if you're lactose intolerant, yes, yes, <laughs> those are your three options of what you can yeah. you can do. No, you'd have toothache, you'd have ear infection. I guess infections would just get better over time. They must, mm. right? You just yeah. have to sort of it just has to get through it on the course of things. But I I got pneumonia a lot too when I was a kid. I would have been dead before I reached like ten. Yes, yeah. No, and then once I, I reached eleven, I'd be a fighting age, and I would have died in 
the war between the states. Yeah, so then you can you can get married at twelve. Everything's ready to go. You have a farm. You have ten kids, and then you pass away at sixteen. That's the end of Drink, it. For you. Drinking problem by eleven. I mean, that's why the uh, it's probably the the importance of alcohol, right? Just have to like salve that kind of uh, horrible I guess, yeah. life lifetime. Yeah, it's a, it's not not a pleasant particularly pleasant place to be. Uh, just this quote I thought was interesting from Swearingen when he's talking to Dan, who's having his uh, confidence issues. Whatever looks ahead of grievous abominations and disorder, you and me walk into it together like always. So there is a uh, – did you see any duplicity there or Swearingen being truthful when he's talking to Dan about Adams? Yeah, I I think so. He But he's he still needs to kind of go over the top because – Clearly, Dan needs the reassurance, and I think it's going to take more than just being like, hey, buddy, you're my number one guy. Yeah, yeah. And so he, he lays it on a little thick. But So I think I, I get the sense that <clears throat> that he's legitimate when he talks to Dan. Yes, yeah. They've been through a lot. We've learned through exposition. Um, I do like that. Uh, I, I like the sort of interactions between Silas, Dan, and Swearingen. I think that that's... <laughs> I think that that's uh, interesting. It, it, it's nice that it's nice that they do have a little bit of conflict between that group all the mm. time. Um, the The show always does the building to a fight. Interestingly, too, just where Dan Dan goes over and is like cleaning the table vigorously. The guy's like, "I think you cleaned it, boss." <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "The fuck do you say to me?" Think about gotta clean their house. Another fucking clever one. You know, I bet when you and your partner's out on the trail, when you ain't greasing poles and choosing who's going to be rider, oh, I bet you and him just bust each other's guts with your little fucking funnies. Well, we do laugh some about you. Let's hear a belly giggle now, you cocksucker. That was was what was great about the Old West is... All it took was a slight uh, uh, table a cleaning, slight, <laughs> yeah, a, a slight slight, if you will, yeah. and it could people microaggressions and shoot each other. Yeah, microaggression. <laughs> it did. Um, that scene did have one of my favorite lines so far uh, when Al is talking to uh, Silas, and he says, "Over time, your quickness with a cocky rejoinder must have gotten you many punches to the face." <laughs> <laughs> Depends what you mean by many. There you go. We did it again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're cocking. Was the whole, um, uh, that, that's probably plot wise. That's the most confusing section to me that I'm not sure I could even explain right now why Yankton prefers Bullock over. Yeah. I wasn't really tracking that stuff. No, I, I, I don't even know if the show it is was... justifying it all that well. It just, ha- it has to be a reason. Swearingen needs a reason for the larger purpose why Bullock has to maintain his position. It was something along the lines of like Bullock is from Montana, yeah, or or they they perceive him to be from Montana, and the and the people in charge in Montana have like deeper pockets or some shit. Yeah, it's something yeah. something like yeah. that where he's like the hometown boy up there. So any any dealings, he's he's important to any deal yeah it's kind of mob esque. he's like a made man just because he's from the the wealthier area and probably has connections and stuff like that yeah but they haven't um uh, at this point no one from the government or no one else has really come into the camp yet they're mostly they're still just kind of talking about the fact that uh 
people are trying to line their pockets with what's coming. Uh, the next episode will feature a little bit more of an intrusion as we're introduced to other characters. Um, yeah, uh, Swearingen continues to get sick. I think I cut you off. Any thoughts about Swearingen continuing to get sick? No, I just think it's it's very funny. Like even the way that he, uh, I feel like McShane very consciously is keeping his one good eye open extra wide. Yeah, when he's got <laughs> the other one is like swollen shut. Yeah, it creates a very humorous look. Yep. And man, I was I was laughing very hard when <laughs> when he's he's trying to get her to pull his, his her thumb out of his ass yeah. and then he's like what part of me running away from you <laughs> told you that you should push deeper <laughs> sorry <laughs> do you want me to suck your prick please <laughs> yeah 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 it's uh he's i i think mcshane is doing um i really feel for l's pain in through his performance, um, yeah. I like it's a visceral sense of this guy is just fucked up. Like he has both the kidney stone and he's clearly injured from the fight with Bullock. And mm. um, the way he's hobbling around, the way his face looks, the makeup is really good, and everything like that. He just sees it's a it's a terrific performance about uh, just like how disheveled this guy is. Um, and the scenes where people are talking to him are all very funny. And I I love it. I love him. You you get a little bit of that exasperation from him when people are trying to, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? People are trying to uh, uh, kiss, empathize, ass. empathize with his pain. Oh, like sure. the, what's what's his name? The guy with the bowler hat, Tom Nuttall, who sa- the other yeah, bartender, Nuttall, yeah. yeah, who says, uh, I think it's him who says, uh, you know, even when Jesus was up there on the cross, I f- I always thought the thing that hurt him the most was the rib pain. <laughs> because <laughs> Al's ribs are sore yeah. Yeah. yeah but like and then he's got this other weird thing where his it's such a strange detail but uh is it johnny is johnny the guy with the king, is, yeah. yeah johnny brings his suit back but his suit stinks <laughs> like i wasn't tracking what that was other than just it's another indignity on top of everything else that his suit yeah. smells like shit yeah he brought or it whatever to it was they cleaned it yeah brought it to woofer i think primitive dry cleaning and so whatever oil oh, or powder okay, he sure, used yeah. is is causing it to stink. Yeah. Um it's nice that he gets his suit cleaned, though. Yeah. You know. Bullock's still traipsing around the same shit covered suit from earlier in the day. Oh, I yeah, I guess that's why he got it cleaned, right? Because it was all uh yeah. up. Yeah, that makes mm. sense. I guess that's the time I was forgetting how quick <clears throat> this has been um over the course of the day, or in the course of the day in the in terms of the show. Yeah. Um yeah, I think McShane is uh, terrific in this sort of injury role. Um, they're sort of uh, weakening him bit by bit. He uh, he has some <laughs> some good moments. Still gets to have great dialogue with characters. I like his, his stuff with uh, Tom Nuttall. I think that conversation is very funny. His confrontation with Bullock at the end is funny. Um, Jane curses him out a few times and he doesn't react to her, really, which is a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just they tend to be... Tend to be quite nice. So, what do you think of? Um, you get a little bit of Alma in this one. It's mostly her looking out the window, talking to that um, babysitter she has, mm-hmm. or the like, the teacher, Miss Isernhausen. Um, anything to say about Alma in this one? I I was trying to track what was going on there too. Was was Sarah Paulson spreading rumors or something? Because she they they cut back to her telling Alma something 
that sounded like she was talking shit about Bullock, but it was unconfirmed stuff about like what his plans were, mm-hmm. which is what causes Alma to kind of respond to be like, I'm I'm not going to leave here and leave this girl. I, I wasn't totally tracking exactly Oh, the Sophia thing. Is that what you mean? So she had heard that they were going to run away and leave Sophia. I, I think... If I'm remembering right, they sort of cut into that scene in a way yes, that you you don't know what they've been talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, that's why that's what caught me off guard because it's like right in the middle of the conversation, and it sounds like Sarah Paulson is is talking about something she heard. Yes, it's either that or she's giving hypotheticals to Alma about what mm-hmm. might be the outcome, and one of the outcomes might be that if she and Bullock leave, Sophia has to stay behind in the town. Ah, uh, okay. And whether and and that's sort of like I, I always just interpret it as a like it's it's the cracks in Alma at that point where she's kind of realizing the downside to some of the things that she's considering at this point. Mm-hmm. Al, Alma's storyline is not really resolved here yet because Bullock doesn't talk to her at the end of the night. He just goes home instead. Yeah, I just I just couldn't tell if if she was doing it like if she had an, ul- with, an, ul- right, an ulterior yeah. motive or something, you know? Yeah, that's not. That's not the sense I get at this okay. point. Yeah. Um, I think it's just she's kind of giving her a, a – they had to have some character who would question what Alma is thinking. Um, anyone else there? Doc and Jane, they just have sort of minor scenes with each other. Oh, who, the uh, uh, me too is a, a thing that happens. Whose brain was he digging into? I think that's uh, the Reverend. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, oh! That was another thing. Does is was he at the end? Was Swearingen talking about the Reverend that we've been watching on the show as being killed by the heathens on the side of the road? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's very unceremonious end to that character. Well, I, but he's doing it just as a cover. They're blaming the Indians for Swearingen killing him. Oh, right. I told I because as he was telling that story, I was like. I don't think that's what happened to him. So I, I couldn't. I couldn't remember what the hell happened to him. Yeah. So swear, in the show, Swearingen right, he, smothers he, him. Yeah. Right. In real life, Reverend Smith was found the way that Swearingen describes. So he, oh, really? Yeah. He was okay. found dead on the side of the road, and they they think that Native Americans had killed him. And so that's I think it's bad. just a clever use of the show tying together history and saying that that we dumped his body by the side of the road so that no one was the wiser. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm pretty sure that Doc is digging around in, because that would make sense why it's the brain because of the right. seizures that he's having. Yeah, but would, you don't yeah. see his face. Um, they didn't want to. They didn't want to do the the Deadwood special where they pay for him to show up for eight hours to <laughs> pretend to be a dead body. They can have Ricky J drop the body off and just walk out the door and say, "Yeah, no, no lines of dialogue." Uh, we only get a little bit of sigh in this one. He basically tries to uh, motivate his. Uh, employees <laughs> in the, in the he, worst meeting of all time <laughs> when 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 they started that scene and they just had the camera on him while he was going off i was like if there's someone sucking his dick <laughs> this show really is starting to turn into a parody of itself <laughs> general principle i believe in fostering people's tries and improving themselves and i think you all also know that i got a special fondness for Johnny Stubbs. And if those things wasn't true, in this camp, at this precise juncture, our side Tolliver would not have backed 
an exclusively high-end whoring operation at the far fucking end of the camp without concealed access for its trade. But be that as it may, and wishing Joni Godspeed, this congregation gathers so that I can assure each of you that our operation here, the Bella Union, is organized exactly to capitalize on what this camp is ready for and for what it's going to become. I always thought, I always uh, rem- misremembered that thinking he's talking to nobody because the way he's talking, oh, sure, no one's yeah. responding to anything, but he's he's just ranting for a little bit. Uh, but he's upset because Joni and Maddie have set up the Chez Ami on the other side of town, uh, which is the kind of joint where $2 worth of labor does not get you a blowjob. So it's for the <laughs> upper echelon. Of uh, it gives you a a whiff of pussy though, which is which is that was really funny. <laughs> which is apparently a menu on the an item on the menu, but yeah, they're so. they're just trying to tidy that place up, and they have their own place now, but it's not quite operational. I'm wondering who they think are going to be paying those prices. That's what Amy said. She said, "Who does this? Who's this place yeah. serving at this point?" Right. It's like every time I, it's like you know how you go through like one town. And there's always like a Lamborghini dealership, and you're like, who's, yeah, who's buying these cars? <laughs> yeah. In between, you've got a Lamborghini dealership in between a Walmart and like a, a chain restaurant in in a town that's basically built off of a highway. Who's buying these cars? I, I had a weird, semi-related <clears throat> thing like that. So we went down to the Outer Banks of North Carolina recently. We drove down from Massachusetts and. When you get to so when you go into northern Delaware and you get past Philadelphia, you can kind of go down that little Chesapeake Peninsula or whatever that thing is called that will get you mm-hmm. to the bridge that brings you to Virginia and then into North Carolina. And that whole stretch is just like a it's like a state like the the only the major thoroughfare is like a state road. It's like a two lane you know, uh, road that's driving through like just farmland and strip malls and stuff like that. It's just like mm-hmm. a straight shot and the kind of thing that you fall asleep after 10 minutes of driving. And, you know, you're going past all the strip malls, you're going past like a billion tractor supply stores, you go past all this other stuff. And as we're going past it, in the middle of nowhere, there's no other major cities, we drove past an Enterprise rent-a-car place. <laughs> and I was just like, who is this serving? Out here, right. like like normally, a rent a car is near like an airport or something like where there's a reason that you need to rent a car for, to get yeah. around. But how do you how do you get to this enterprise? Right, exactly. How do car? you get there? Like, do you have to take an Uber from Philadelphia for a hundred miles to get yeah. there? It was it was bizarre. Yeah, yeah that's how. Anytime I go to New Hampshire, anytime we drive into New Hampshire, there's always you know you're driving through the mountains, going to North Conway or something, and just out of nowhere on the side of the road, there's like a tile flooring place yes yeah and it's like who's okay i mean i guess has to be one i guess it's got to be you got to put it somewhere i guess but it's all it's it's always strange to me to see businesses that are just lone yeah. lone <laughs> buildings strange, sticking like a, out of it's not a grocery store wilderness. you know it's just, it's like, right it's yeah. a very niche product yeah yeah and we always do the same i don't know if you guys do the same with um we have a we have we just have sort of a running joke with me and Amy like on on road trips or where you're driving through some place and you you see a house and you're just like who lives there yes it's like <laughs> every time 
<laughs> Every time I drive through New Hampshire, I'm like, who's living in these houses? What are they doing? Where are they going? And you feel like the government should be keeping tabs on these people. Like there's there's no reason. You know, just like you'll be up in New Hampshire my or like uh, driving into Western Mass. It's like you're on a, a state highway road at night mm-hmm. and it's just like a mile of nothing and then there's a solitary ranch house with no lights on and a car yes. in the driveway and you're yes. like what the fuck is going on it's in like there? like you've just driven into in cold blood yeah <laughs> and you just you keep your eye on the house in the rear view as you drive over around mm-hmm. the bend and you're like I, I, the last thing i need is a bunch of cannibals running out of that thing and chasing the car down yeah. terrifying terrifying but who lives mm-hmm. there uh Anything else about this episode? Well, I agreed upon. So I guess the the title is a good place to go with. Um, the final thought would be the the theme. One of the themes of the show is the idea of lies agreed upon, and we've talked about that. I think Napoleon is attributed to uh, the quote is attributed to Napoleon that um, history is a lie agreed upon by the winners, or something like that. Um, so the idea that stories are kind of made up. And we as a society or a culture kind of agree to them. Um, one of the examples here is marriage in this episode. Um, the idea that you have control over your life, I guess, would be another one. That's a lie agreed upon. Um, I don't know if you have any of the others. But I, I really like that concept of uh, uh, cultural analysis, I guess it is, which is just that mm. there are so this sort of – there's sort of things that we all know are kind of like money is a good example. Money's a lie. Right, like no, right. money doesn't really exist, but the reason that it, it exists is because we all agree that it means something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the piece of paper you're holding in your hand does not actually have any legitimate value to it. It's just kind of the agreement in society. So I, I just like I'm the sorry. idea. I'm sorry. I didn't realize all of a sudden we're at a at a kegger in college. <laughs> <laughs> that, money. That one guy that one guy being like man you know money isn't even real did you realize, ever know, did you realize that it's, just, right. it's, it's just paper it, it only exists <laughs> it only exists it's only worth something because we believe it to be how could there have been in the great depression running out of money this is like the modern monetary theory like how saying you ran out of money is the equivalent of saying like you ran out of like breaths or something like that like that yeah there's a sort of funniness to it that it's like, it, like how, how could you not make more of it obviously there's how come, complicated how come, economics how come during the great depression if it was happening in the entire world how come they didn't just go guys we're done with money for now yeah doesn't exist anymore <laughs> let's figure something else out and let's get this shit rolling again that's all the uh this is yeah just shitty economics but like that's the that's always the funny point about like debt right like who how how can you owe so much debt to to people right. like what yeah. like how how can debt exist and obviously it does but debt is also just another one of those lies agreed upon but did you see any other examples of such a thing in this one or what do you think the main thing is that everyone is what what is the thing that doesn't actually matter but does matter to the town um thing that doesn't actually matter that does matter to the town um, is it bullock is it the idea that they are building something is it is it the marriage of bullock is it yeah i think generally there's the sense that they are they have their eyes towards a legitimacy that feels like it's it's all it, it feels like something that's never going to happen 
You yeah. know, it, it it's the way all of these, anytime they all get together and have their sort of discussions about um, what they're going to do to bring the town into the next century or whatever. And so they don't get rolled over. It always feels like when, when, a, when a bunch of friends get together and say, let's start a business. And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, okay, I'll come over. We'll hang out for a little bit and we'll talk some bullshit and then mm-hmm. never talk about this ever again. <laughs> <laughs> but like I, I, I really liked the the scene with um, Al and Merrick, where Merrick yeah. wants to to know what was going on, and Al gives him a very sanitized version. Or he he's there's some line about decency, but then he cleans everything up and, yes. and basically gives him a sanitized PR spun version of what was going on. That, yep. that kind of felt like it was very of the of the theme. That's the closeout to the episode. Is Al writing, uh, dictating? The newspaper article to Mary. Yeah. Tonight, throughout Deadwood, heads may be laid to pillow, assuaged and reassured for that purveyor for profit of everything sordid and vicious Al Swearingen, already beaten to a fairly well earlier in the day by Sheriff Bullock, has returned to the sheriff the implements and ornaments of his office. Without the tawdry walls of Swearingen Saloon, the gem, decent citizens may pursue with a new and jaunty freedom all aspects of Christian commerce. In which connection we particularly recommend, and there you throw in the names of a few businesses, gave you good size adverts. Yeah, I, I, that is a that's an example of it too. I guess I, like it continues Milch's sort of like antagonistic approach towards journalism, where Swearingen's monologue ends with like, uh, and thanks to the kind off like the kind support of the following, and he's like, and then list your three major like yes. the three the three companies yeah. that gave you the most ad space or something like that. And yeah, it's, it's a yeah uh, journalism. I guess would be the same thing of a a lie agreed upon um, in that sense. But yeah, that's the closing monologue, and then Al is going to bed. I assume Merrick tuck, tucks him in. That would be the polite thing to do, but we don't get to see that. <laughs> Who was Trixie going to shoot? At the very end when there's the yeah. standoff? Yeah. Yeah, because she keeps talking shit, I assume, about Bullock. Yes. So is she? does she have her gun on But Because we never see from her point of view. No, she just you see her walk at. towards the camera. Yep. Yeah, so I don't know if she's got... The, the gun trained on him or if it's trained on Al or, or what? Uh, I would guess at this point it's Al, I think. Although she definitely doesn't like Bullock at all. Maybe that mm-hmm. would be the... Yeah, because uh, she doesn't interact with Al in these two scenes, right? She's been with Saul the entire time. I right, think. yeah. Yeah, so I haven't had a sense. But she, she, she gives Saul the little six-shooter because it won't, uh, it won't knock him out with the pain of having to fire the gun. Um, so that's it. That's it for the two-parter. Deadwood's only two-parter, Clay. So we're over with these. The rest of them are standalone episodes in the episodic sense. Uh, any final thoughts about a lie agreed upon parts one and two, or uh, just part two, if you'd like? Um, no, it was it was good. It, the show continues to be good. Uh, this one, I I think they do a good job balancing the density of the language with just clear, uh, um, 
clear scenes where you don't necessarily need to understand exactly all that they're saying in order to get what's going on. Yeah. And you know that's that's a that's a credit to the to the writing and especially to the actors for for uh, pulling it all off as as well as they do. Yeah, yeah, they um a lot of farting in this episode. Yeah, there's a lot of farting. I like, I like Cochran's. He's like Jane. The allure of the female breasts left me long ago. <laughs> Take off your goddamn my, house. My favorite. My favorite one was when when uh, Charlie apropos of nothing gets up and he goes yeah i'm gonna of course i move over here if i'm gonna pass win it's only the polite thing to do <laughs> yeah. and seth, and seth is like what the fuck <laughs> and he charlie hollers back something he's like don't ever tell anyone i wasn't a gentleman <laughs> yeah <laughs> my gut my guts is all a mess right now <laughs> my guts are in upheaval i think he says yeah. <laughs> that would be that would be if you were lactose intolerant that yeah. would be every, every day he, probably, he just doesn't know he just can't can't eat cheese all day i love that the episode ends with him with seth placing a loaded gun next to his yes. son <laughs> i want <laughs> he's uh he wants him to know he went back and got the got those weapons what do you think of seth's house that he built nice house yeah ni- nice <laughs> from what from what good, i can see tea. it looks real nice yeah <laughs> yeah it's um I was surprised he went with the wraparound staircase. Really, that, that seems like a complicated architectural design. But he, he I, went for you it. You know, I was surprised to see the off-center entryway because when he kind of goes around the corner on the porch and enters that way, oh, it has like a mud room. Just, you mean, yeah, it has yeah. like that outer room. I guess that makes sense. They probably more houses probably did have that because uh, you, you got like shit all over your feet yeah, a lot and of, stuff like a lot that. Of shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, so I guess that's it. We'll we'll catch up with the rest of the Deadwood crew in the next episode, which is called New Money. We introduced to a new character in New Money. Um, but that's new character, it. old face. That's right, new character, old face. So, I'm really looking forward to talking about that because I can't believe that they did that. But. Yeah, there's there's a lot of production. You can't notes do that anymore. It. No, yeah. you can't do that anymore. It's uh, I do remember I did not notice it the first time I watched the show. Yeah. I, the performance is astoundingly different from what it's we're what we're used to. Like, given the way that all of the TV shows, <coughs> excuse me, nowadays are so every word, it, it, it's such a it, it's such a result of like the mystery box storytelling and spoiler culture that every show that is a is a non episodic serialized show, every single movement action word spoken and character who shows up on screen has a definitive existence that must mean something yes. in the universe. Yeah. And so it's like this is like if Sean Bean just showed up in the third season of uh Game of Thrones <laughs> playing a completely different character yeah. with no connection to to Ned Stark and nobody ever brought it up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it would be. People who drive people insane. It's uh <clears throat> It's funny though, because in in those kind of not that Game of Thrones is a mystery box, but in like the more mystery boxy shows, it's funny that that would be egregious when a lot of the stuff in mystery box shows tends to not amount to anything, but people right. forget about it, I guess. But a, an actress face is probably something more uh, visceral, and you sort of remember it yeah. or whatever. It is. I I feel like the closest to something like this is when they remember in Wandavision. Mm-hmm. Where they had the guy, the the kid from the X Men who played Quicksilver, right? Playing Quicksilver, and yep. everybody was losing their fucking minds, and it was just like, "Nah, we thought it would be a fun joke." <laughs> <laughs> when making a joke it goes wrong in the writers' yeah. room of LA, 
Uh, are we going to have a TV writer strike? No, I don't know. It's in the it's in the news. I think it's yeah. I think it's supposed to happen uh, the next day or so. I think the last writer strike we had was a couple of years ago, right? It was like a decade ago, maybe. Mm. I I read a really interesting thread <clears throat> talking about uh, what happens when the writers strike. Uh, uh, and it was framed in in the production and release of the the James Bond movie Quantum of Solace. Yeah. And it was it was pretty interesting because that movie is famously terrible in a in a very oddly specific way. And yeah. I guess that was one where they were they were going into production as the writer's strike started, so they couldn't yep. make any changes to the script. So like Daniel Craig and the director were just making stuff up <laughs> on, on the day. And there's a quote from Daniel Craig where he's like, Yeah, you know, I'm an actor, uh, but I am not a writer, I discovered, as we were making this movie. <laughs> Silly not on the fly, I don't think. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of weird rules about, like, they're allowed to shoot, but they can't just they just can't edit any of the scripts or anything like that. Like, right, uh, yeah. So it's, it's a strange place. That happened to the uh, the second X-Files movie, I think, was one of those, too. Where no. it's, which is wild to me, because it really makes you wonder how much really, like, they must be it must be incredibly common to just change whole sections of the script. If you're going in, I mean, I guess it's, if you're, if you're hustling to get something you think you can shoot by the strike deadline, that isn't necessarily possibly finished and or good. Yeah. Maybe like a first draft or something. Yeah. But, uh, it's always wild when it's like, yeah, that was a writer's strike movie. It's like, well, you still had the script and you still made the movie. So what were you going to do otherwise? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If there wasn't a script, were you just going to rewrite it on the fly as you were making the movie? Is that how this works? Chat GPT it now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Writers aren't counting on, on every, on the, uh, studios having that in their back pocket this time no the writers were late on uh streaming royalties and then they were late on chat gpt whatever that's going to do for yeah. draft generation and stuff like that um that's it we're done that's all i agreed upon the next episode is new money thanks everybody for listening you can support the show at patreon.com slash the penske file someone on patreon actually said that they signed up just because of this show so maybe people are listening oh, to the show yeah we got one we got one we do, we're done thanks very much uh we will we will not finish this podcast <laughs> well you either. know wes if this sh- we can just reach one person with this mm-hmm. show i it will, it will have been all worth it it will yeah so thank so you mission, person. mission accomplished thank you person on patreon and thank you for uh, possibly your 30 to $60 by the time this is all said and done. Hopefully you stick around after that. You can check out all the other shows while you're on there. You can check out all the Star Trek podcasts. You can check out the Rotten Horror Picture Show. You can check out Badass. If I think this person should... Should we tell them that all of our shows that are not Star Trek-based tend to end abruptly before they're finished? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this one has this one has the end in sight. I can see the that's ending, true. the ending episode. Some of the other ones now. That, well, that that's was, what I thought about the prisoner, and then I my hard drive crashed. That's, that's true. The the final prisoner episode will never be heard by anybody, mm-hmm, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we watched the remake on that one, so you can watch the original one, and then you can watch the remake uh, or listen to the podcast. Yeah, it speaks for itself, though, doesn't it? That it does. we didn't bother to go back and finish it. Well, that was like, you know, with Moore's Law, that was like a totally different internet world back then. Like maybe nowadays it would be resavable or something, but we were, I was recording on like a Blue Yeti in the middle of a table and Mm -hmm. that that was, that was the extent of it. So 
I guess we'll go out with a final Deadwood thing here. Let me see if I can come up with a question for you off the top of my head. Um, uh, does Deadwood have anything unique to it that you think is unique to itself as a show that it doesn't really share with any other kind of show? It doesn't have to be anything major, just something that the show does uh, particularly well or particularly not well or uniquely compared to other TV? I do think the dialogue in this show is in and of its like on a, its own level. Like there's something about the way that these scripts are written and um they they are they're written in a old-fashioned kind of dialect, but it doesn't feel pretentious to me. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like they're really trying, but it, but it's just there's you know, as we've talked about many times, <clears throat> there's there's a density to what they're saying. That if you if you really listen, and a lot of times you do have to really listen to what you're saying, they give you everything, but there is just this sort of like almost like a, a translation barrier that you have to get through sometimes to really understand what's going on. Yeah, and I, I can't really I can't really think of another show that that's done that. Yeah, I, I it's funny because while watching this episode, I was thinking that during one of the Alma scenes, because Alma Alma speaks more proper compared to the other characters because she's a educated woman from the East mm-hmm. Coast and stuff like that. But I was wondering, like, because I agree with you, but I, I, while Alma was speaking, for some reason it popped into my mind of, like, I wonder if people find this show to be pretentious. Yeah, I was thinking that specifically in this episode as well. Yeah, maybe for it was in the specific? same scene. I, no, I think it was just there, there maybe was one. You know what it was? <clears throat> I think it was in the Tom Nettle scene. Where he's, he's talking, talking to Al, Al mm. and he uses a word like perspicacity or something like that, like some <laughs> some big yeah. archaic word that no one in the twentieth or twenty first century ever throws off in in general conversation. And that was the first time where I was like, okay, that feels a little bit like they're trying, they're reaching. Yeah. Um, but generally, I don't feel that because what is the <laughs> it's my one of, one of the the greatest lines of Deadwood comes up uh, in a future episode, but it's also Tom Nuttall. So I think Nuttall is just kind of a character who talks this way. But mm. yeah, it's um because I think that this line sums up the difference. Tom Nuttall has a quote. He says, "My bicycle mastered masters boardwalk and quagmire with a plum." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is it, it's it's a very funny mm. thing for him to say um, in the context, which we'll get to. But it's also it's dangerously close to being pretentious, but it's like it's it's such a silly thing to say that it's not pretentious at the same time somehow. Yeah. And there's always the the people who talk like that the most tend to be the real shit kickers. Yeah. yeah. And so there's something about that as well where it's like you've got E B coming in and saying, like, Well, I, I believe thee nay that we should go and it's just there's the the, the fact that it's these guys who are kinda dumbasses. Yep putting on airs of of um intelligence and respectability which i think kind of evens it out yeah because like if they were talking like that in if this was the importance of being earnest or something yeah. <laughs> it would it would feel a lot <laughs> less uh there'd be I, a lot less forgiving i think yeah no i i adore uh Milch's dialogue i think he's um he has a he has or had a sort of certain ear for things like this and, and writes in a very musical way with the, the, the way the characters 
say things in the way that they the choices for words that they use and stuff like that. I, I um, even just, it just is just there's a way he disguises not disguises but dresses up what they're talking about. I, I always think about Swearingen when in that scene in the first season where he's talking to Wild Bill and he says that like I didn't get to this place thinking about the right and wrong of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I just find it to be a really clever. It's not even clever. I, ju- I just find it to be a really like interesting line to have yeah. Swearingen say that. Um, it's more. It's more. The dialogue is just more. I've. I, I know. I don't. I don't want to discount all the hard work that people do in these shows because it's very difficult, and a lot of them are very good. But there, it it feels like the dialogue in the show is more considered than your average show. Yeah. Just because they're they so rarely are talking about something directly without it having multiple meanings. Yes. Yeah. That it's. It just has a different tenor to it, and it doesn't ring false because, as we were discussing here, the conversations that they have, you can kind of choose your own. It, it, it almost it's almost like you are actually watching these people have real conversations because you don't necessarily know exactly what their motivations are underneath the words that they're saying to each other. Right, yeah. and that's incredibly hard to do because. Yes, yeah. It's, you know, having Al, I think, is is the best at it because so much of what he does and says is uh, very reactionary to other stuff that's happening. And so you can kind of see where the, the road is, is taking him, where it's like in one scene he's mad about there being a, 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 a warrant out for his arrest for murder, which is going to fuck up his business or whatever. And then the next scene... He's going into someone seeming extra hot and extra mean yeah. for reasons that you're like, okay, he's not mad. He's not mad at be- because this guy spilled beer all over the table. He's still mad about the other thing, and he's taking you know. So yeah. it, there's it's very difficult. You you really need to be have great actors who can really dial that in and make that work. Yeah, yeah. I think my final thing would just be uh, it does the dialogue does occasionally remind me of um, a foreign language in some ways, which is that there's like. Yeah. There's a there's a level of understanding. You just reminded me from when characters in the show have a lot of conversations where they're talking about something, but they're sort of talking about something else at the same time yes. that they're talking yeah. about. But there's a level of getting used to the dialogue in Deadwood, which is similar to a foreign language, where if you're just learning the language, you're really just going literally off the words that are being said to you. Mm-hmm. Like you're trying to mm-hmm. keep up just by saying like, I know that word, like that's a familiar word. I can track that. And I think that Deadwood is so rewatchable because once you're familiar with the words and the cadence and the syntax, you become much more aware of the layers of conversation that are going on yeah. on it. And, you know, I, I we've talked about this a bit before, and, and I, I think it is very easy to kind of roll your eyes when people compare it to Shakespeare because uh, I think most people when you say that they immediately think like quality level. Yeah. Um, but I think it is not dissimilar to that because so much of Shakespeare's dialogue in his plays does have multiple meanings. Yeah. And the way that he'll use a metaphor or a turn of phrase or something, which is literal to what's happening, but also referencing like the, the failing of a, the moral failing of a character from something they did later in uh, earlier in the play or something it's just that it has that same kind of feel to it yeah yeah we're done with this episode thanks everybody let us know if you're enjoying the coverage let us know if you're enjoying the show 
You can join us on Discord if you want to talk about it there. Thanks to that patron for signing up for Deadwood. And we will see you next time with new money. See ya. I offer these. And I hope you'll wear them a good long fucking time in this fucking cap who's ever fucking thumb we're under. And where it come to me just a few moments ago that the Reverend Smith, he rest his soul, he was found on the road. Apparently murdered by heathens just some months ago. What he said on the subject of you, Mr. Bullock raises a camp up, and I hope he'll reside with us and improve our general fucking atmosphere for a good long fucking time, even with all the personal complications and fucking disasters that we all fucking have. And where running away solves absolutely fucking nothing.